We are grateful that you are here this morning. Reminded, of course, of the words of the sweet psalmist of Israel, Psalm 122, that I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. This is not the house of the Lord in the sense of the tabernacle or the temple, but we're thankful to have a place to meet together, and we're grateful that you are here. We've got some who are visitors amongst us. Maybe it's your first time to be here. As uh, Brother Barry said to begin, we're grateful for your presence and hope that you'll hang around, that we can greet you. We've got some that have returned to us again, and we are grateful that you are here. I told Son four or five months ago there, I didn't know that we'd see him again here in this pew. He was pretty bad off there in the hospital with his pneumonia and all, but we're glad that he's here, glad that Sister Samira is with us, and so many others. And even as the good news comes, and we're thankful that they're here. Sometimes we get bad news. We want to pray for those who are not with us, Sister, or certainly Sister Joyce and even uh, Brother Bill this morning as he's not able to be with us. Uh, we want to continue to pray for all those who are on our sick list. But we're thankful that you have been able to be here with us this morning. Hope that you can be back with us again this evening as we will seek to study together uh, even this afternoon or this evening and study some more. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at the book of Judges as best we can in just uh, uh, 30 minutes or so there to consider that good book. We're continuing this morning in a lesson or a couple of lessons to consider when the fullness of time had come. If you have your bulletin, you may notice the title says that it's part two. I wasn't sure how many weeks we might take to take a look at this or to consider these ideas, but we talked last week about when the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son into the world, born of a woman. Matthew, we talked about last week gave us the prophecies. He talked about the different prophecies that would come. He talked about how it was the right time, and it was the right time as he was pointing towards this Christ child who was born and had come into the world. And there's some encouragement there as we consider that idea. We mentioned last week as we began that that as Paul says those words there to those in Galatia about when the fullness of time had come, it's almost like just a passing thought if you're not careful. We just kind of go right by it, not even paying attention of the the powerful moment that is mentioned there. John does it the same way. He says the same thing, of course, in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then in verse 14, when he talks about the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he talks about the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, seemingly passing by this this wondrous and great moment. It's almost passed over in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, in verse number 7, it said, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. As we consider this lesson, I told you last week, this lesson is, is not about the celebration that we would sometimes call Christmas. That may be another lesson for another time of why we don't exactly celebrate the way the world does in this fashion. But at the same time, our goal is to to consider this great moment. As we said last week, we don't want to to be in one ditch or the other necessarily. We want to stay the straight and narrow. Even as you have sung these songs this morning, we would oftentimes gasp, almost if you would, at at singing some of these songs because of the the association of them with the the holiday. Appreciate Don taking a moment and, and, and leading these songs. Because, yeah, a lot of times if we don't sing them at at one particular point, then we don't sing them at all. And if we're not careful, we avoid them. And I hope that you paid attention to the words. If you're like me, a lot of them, we know the first line or so because we do hear them around that certain time of the year. But there, there are so many things that are included there that talk about these moments that we've discussed the last couple of weeks. The birth of Christ is an important moment in God's scheme of redemption. We said... Maybe when he died, maybe the greatest day, but he, he also rose and he couldn't rise if he didn't die and he didn't, 
couldn't die if he wasn't born. And so it's important for us to consider what the Bible has to say about the birth of Christ. Last week we pointed out, as we said, that Matthew was writing as a Jew to Jews about a Jew. And we said this week that we were going to come back and we were going to consider what Luke had to say about this particular moment. Now, when we think about what Luke has to say, we're going to take a look this morning at three P words, if you will, and then we're going to make some application for ourselves. The first one is about Luke. We must consider as we think about what he writes that Luke was a physician. Luke was a physician. He was writing, even as he penned these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing with the compassion and warmth, if you will, of a family doctor. He understands these things, and that, that's borne out in the words that he used in the way that he discusses these different things. The first thing, again, if you've got your bulletin in front of you and you're filling in the blanks, is that he mentions the leaping that takes place in the womb. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke's account of the gospel in Luke chapter 1. We're looking, first of all, at verses 39 through 45, where Mary, after she receives her announcement, goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. And as she goes to see Elizabeth, verse 41 says, It happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. Uh, now, I guess, again, by inspiration, anybody could have recorded these facts if the Holy Spirit was guiding them. But it's interesting that the physician, the doctor, Luke, records this for us. This is pointing the way to the Christ. Mary, of, or excuse me, Elizabeth, of course, is carrying John the baptizer. We call John the Baptist. He's, he's in her womb. He's a living, breathing thing, by the way. We've, we've talked about this in a previous lesson, but the, the word used there of, of brephos in the Greek, the, the unborn baby is a baby. It is a, a person in her belly. This is a baby in her womb who leaps for joy. And if you've ever felt that, of course, some of you as mothers... Or even if you've not felt it directly in your womb, but maybe you put your hand on a mother's stomach and felt that baby kick, you understand that's a, it's a joyous occasion. But Elizabeth knows it's not just a baby kicking. It's not just gas. It's not just something that's, that's bothering him. This is pointing the way towards the Christ who has entered the room by means of his mother in the womb. And Luke records for us this, this leaping in the womb that we can see. Again, something else in the context of Luke 1 and 2 here that mentions to us, that is showing us this Christ child who is about to be born into the world. The second thing that I would mention to you that, that Luke mentions is the circumcisions. If you've got your Bibles there in Luke chapter 1 and verses 59 through 66, but then again over in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 21, Luke records for us the circumcisions of both John the baptizer and Jesus the Christ. Of course, these things are done on the eighth day. Both of those passages there say that in verse 59 and chapter 2 in verse 21. The eighth day, of course, is required by the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 12 and verse number 3. That's a whole other lesson about the scientific nature of God. I really want to get into those. Maybe it may be 2020, God willing, that we can talk about some lessons about science, but God knew, he understood, he, whether it's the clotting of the blood and all, all things that go into it, that the eighth day was the day. And both of these young men are circumcised on the eighth day. He's the only one that mentions it. Mentioning and writing, again, with the compassion and warmth 
of the family doctor, if you will. I would even submit, and I read this in one of the commentaries and books that I was looking at and studying, but, but Luke mentions the swaddling, as we read there a moment ago in chapter 2 and verse number 7. Now, swaddling is often mentioned in a medical context. Uh, I mean, that'd been the first place that I had heard about it, even in my own life, as we had our children, even though I might have seen it done. Uh, a, a baby laying there swaddled together with their arms close around them, having that same feeling almost, if you would, of being in the womb, that, that comfort that comes from that. And so Luke mentions as well the, the swaddling and the swaddling, swaddling cloths that are mentioned there, Luke chapter 2 and verse number 7. There's so many things that are included here that encourage us as we think about the birth of Christ. And, and I would say even scientifically, even in the medical field, as Luke the beloved physician is writing for us. He includes these things so that we understand. Sure, things have changed. The idea that this young mother has to, to birth this child, she, she has to wrap him and take care of him herself. They are in the manger. There's no room at the end. But yet, there's some encouragement to think about the scientific side of these things from Luke the physician. The second thing that I would mention to you in regard to our words here to use is the parents. And first of all, of course, we're going to take a look at Joseph. Now, if you've got your Bibles, you might flip over to Matthew chapter 1. The, the further description of what takes place with Joseph is in Matthew chapter 1 and verses 18 through 25. We read about Joseph being a just man. The Greek word there is dikaios. He is righteous. He is just. He is observing the law. He is upright. He is a just man. We see that there in verse number 19. I'd ask you this morning as we consider the parents in this situation to really consider what position they were in. Think about Joseph. Joseph is saying, I'm going to be a father, but I have no idea how. <laughs> I have no idea how. This is truly a virgin birth. And he says, I don't know how, but I'm going to be a father. The thoughts that are going through his mind must have been something to consider, even as we see here in verses 18 through 25, that he's going to get an explanation. The angel of the Lord is going to come to him in a dream and he's going to explain these things further to him and give him some of the words, some of the things that are going to happen. And the angel of the Lord says there, do not be afraid. At the middle of verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, do not be afraid. And I might be the one, if I were in Joseph's shoes, to say, okay, but how? What do you mean, do not be afraid? This is an angel of the Lord speaking to me in a dream. This is a virgin birth. You're telling me that my wife has a child, but, but I don't know how. Do not be afraid, but, but Joseph is probably saying, but still, how could you not? How could you not, given the situation and the context? And I can only imagine what Joseph might have been thinking. Verse 24 tells us there in Matthew 1, though, that as he was aroused from sleep, that he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took, him to, took to him his wife. He's a just man. He's wanting to do what's right, and he knows he's got this problem. We kind of passed over it there in verse 19, but it says he's a just man, and then it points out that he's got a problem on his hand. He appears to be guilty of something here that would not be right when, in accordance with God's law. He appears to be guilty of something, and how do you handle that? I, I don't know. Being a parent is supposed to be a wondrous time, and maybe he was excited, but I can only think about the trepidation that must have been going through. Even after the angel of the Lord said, do not be afraid, but even in his fear, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And of course, the son comes. 
But not only do we think about Joseph, but of course we think about Mary. If you've got your Bibles and you're following along, you might go back to Luke chapter 1 and verses 26 through 38. We have here Mary, about to be a mother, but yet she's a virgin, betrothed to a man. Again, in Mary's shoes, I'm going to be a mother, but how? I don't understand. I know my body. I know what I've done and what I've not done. I don't understand how this is going to happen. But of course, again, or in some context or some order here, just as Joseph has this dream, the angel appears to Mary. Luke chapter 1 there, beginning in verse 26, that the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man. And the virgin's name was Mary. As she gets this message here, as she gets this greeting, this begins what I'm sure has to be an uneasy nine months or so. Uh, Again, some sense of hiding, some sense of I know that I'm carrying a child. We go further, we've already looked at at her interaction with Elizabeth, but we go forward to that. She gets another bit of a sign there from her interaction with Elizabeth and what Elizabeth says after John the baptizer leaps in her womb, but still... And an uneasy nine months knowing you're carrying a child, knowing you had the interaction with Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. But I can only imagine what might have been going through her mind, thinking about what was about to take place. Sometimes we're really good at looking backwards, you know, we say hindsight's twenty twenty, And we look back at the apostles and we look back at others and we say, how could they miss it? I wonder what Mary and Joseph were thinking. It could have been any number of things going through their mind. Sometimes nine months when you're pregnant seems like a very long time and you have time to to contemplate all kinds of things, both good and bad. Mary and Joseph are in a pretty interesting position here as we go forward to the birth of Christ. But again, it's mentioned. It's mentioned in somewhat of a passing way, just very simply. And I'm sure that it was in a very simple way. Here he is born on this particular day may not know exactly what day that is on the calendar, but yet he is born of a woman, born under the law, born into this world. And after that, we begin to meet some people. Let's talk about four of those very quickly as we have time here. But we begin to meet some people. The first ones, at least in regards to the book of um, Matthew, is the wise men or are the wise men. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 again. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, this is where we get into what we know, right? This is where we get into the songs that we sing around the end of the year, the parts that people know. There are wise men. We meet them here as they come from the east and come to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2. There are some well-known people in this part of this great story. These wise men are likely, likely a priestly class of Gentiles. They're likely a priestly class of Gentiles, and they travel from the east, and they're searching for the coming Messiah. Even as we talked about the prophecies last week, there's there's a discussion there with Herod, who is looking for this, just as they are. They're looking for the Messiah, and Herod is too. And so in verse 7, he calls them in secretly, and he sends them to go to Bethlehem and to see what happened, to try to find this child. In verse number 8, he says, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him 
also. I don't know that that was exactly Herod's intentions, as we know that he had lots of blood on his hands. But these young men are then, or these wise men are then sent. They're sent by Herod to look and to find. And what they do is they worship. And of course, they bring what is listed as three gifts. We don't have time this morning to go into all, of course, the misconceptions and misideas about what people think about with Christmas. But one of them, of course, is that there were just three wise men. We don't know, but they do bring these three gifts, as we see at the end of verse number 11. And notice in verse 12 that after they worship and they deliver the gifts, they depart another way. That's all that we know, but yet it's encouraging to think about this star that they had seen, their guidance to the Christ child, their worshiping of him. And then even as they disobey what Herod has said and go the other way and depart for their own country. The second group that we meet, we can go back to Luke's account again, is in Luke chapter 2 and verses 8 through 20. That is the shepherds. There are shepherds who are outside Bethlehem who are keeping watch over their sheep. They're there. They're living out in the fields. They're keeping watch, in verse number 8, over their flock by night. Now, if you think what Joseph went through and you think what Mary went through was kind of crazy to us, the shepherds here go through a couple of things. First of all, they get a light show, if you will. They get a light show from the angel of the Lord, in verse number 9, who appears before them. I can only imagine again what that would have felt like to have someone just sort of appear out of thin air. Not just someone, but someone with light shining about them. And it says there in verse number 9, they were greatly afraid. This angel of the Lord tells them these things. He encourages them with some of these same words that we have sung even this morning about the Christ who is the Lord, who is lying in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And in verse number 13, they get a second sign. They get a second moment when a heavenly chorus seems to break forth in praise. Even as we have sung these songs this morning, singing those words, thinking about being in a field like any other night, watching your sheep, and here comes this angel, and here comes this heavenly chorus in verse 14 glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men these shepherds are greatly afraid and I find it interesting the way the Bible words it in verse 15 depending on the version that you're maybe that you may be looking at verse 15 says so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Have you ever been in one of those moments when you think you've seen something that you can't imagine? And I I read that as the shepherds said to one another that they all turn and look at each other and go, did we just see that? Did that just really happen? But not out of fear or not out of of being uncertain, but, but out of knowledge and power, they go forth. They said, let's go. They look at one another, we're unsure of what just happened, but let's go and find what the Lord has made known to us. And they go, they go and they see the Christ child, they see the the child in the manger, lying in the swaddling cloths, and they worship. And they go forth telling. There's so many applications here for us, and we're going to get to three very quickly in just a moment. But they go forth telling about this child. Don't keep it to themselves, don't keep it quiet. Don't, don't go and sleep and, and forget it. They go forth telling all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. 
But as we move a little bit further away from the actual birth, we meet a couple of other people. In Luke chapter 2 and verses 25 through 35, we meet Simeon. And Simeon is a part of this story because we see in verses 22 and through 24 of Luke 2 that after the circumcision of Jesus, there was a 33-day period of purification. Again, you go back to Leviticus and you can see these things and read about what they were supposed to do. But there was a 33-day period of purification. And so Luke tells us there by inspiration that when that time had passed, they were to make a sacrifice that the parents were to bring the child to the temple and make a sacrifice. And so they traveled to the temple. And first, they meet Simeon. Again, at least as it's recorded for us. They meet this man, Simeon, in verse 25, and notice what he is. Again, depending on the version you're looking at, mine says that the man was Dikaios. He was just. The same thing as Joseph. He was righteous. He was upright. He obeyed the law. This Simeon is a man who was just like Joseph and was devout. Simeon's an interesting point, though, kind of like the shepherds and kind of like the wise men. It was revealed to him that the Christ was coming and that he would not see death until he saw the one. So Simeon's waiting. He's sort of hanging around, if you will, waiting to see this Messiah this promised one who is coming. Verse 26 says it is, was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 27, he came by the Spirit into the temple and look and behold what happens. Jesus passes by and he takes the baby Jesus. He takes this Jesus, this young child, again, just 33 days after the circumcision, he takes him in his arms and he blesses God. And he praises God and he blesses this family because it was told to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die. And now he's ready. He can die knowing that it was fulfilled as it was told to him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. But do we not only meet Simeon, but we also meet Anna here in Luke chapter 2 and verses 26 through, or 36 through 38. It, it's almost as if there is a, a, a receiving line, if you will. There's a group of people. Who is Anna? Well, Anna is an 84-year-old woman. I appreciate Brother Joe praying for not only our young people, but even our older folks. An 84-year-old woman, a prophetess, fasting and praying in the temple. She's, she's hanging there. She is a widow of about 84 years, and she is staying there and doing these good things. And as ver- in verse 38, in the instant that she sees Jesus, she gives thanks to the Lord. She thanks God for his son, and she speaks about Jesus to others. As we meet these people, we see something very interesting. And that's where I'd begin for us to make application to ourselves. Three application points here, and the lesson will be yours. Number one, the wonderful one deserves worship. It's in Isaiah that Isaiah calls Jesus wonderful, that the wonderful one will be coming. He is wonderful. He is counselor. He is mighty God. He is prince of peace. And as we think about Isaiah pointing towards Christ and using that idea of the word wonderful, The wonderful one deserves our worship. Notice that everyone we discussed, all of those people were worshiping him. This is, of course, a New Testament theme as Jesus moves forward in his life. 
We know that John records for us in John 1 and verse 11 the idea that, that he was not received by his own. That he came to his own and his own received him not. But yet before we get to that point that he is rejected by the Jews, he is worshipped. He's worshipped by everyone that comes into his presence in those first few days of his life. We know that Jesus would go on later to say in John 4, 22 through 24 that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And of course, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 10 through 11 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The wonderful one who came in that moment, who was born of, of a woman, born under the law, born into this world, is the wonderful one who deserves our worship. Even as we have done so this morning, in song, in prayer, in reading of his word, in studying together, he deserves our worship, just as he deserved worship from the wise men and the shepherds and the others who would come into his presence. May we always worship him. May we always consider his birth, and his life, and of course his death, burial, and resurrection. Number two this morning, a humble king wants humble servants. A humble king wants humble servants. Think about this man who came as a babe. As I said to you last week, I suppose that God could have sent Jesus in any form or fashion. He could have sent him with a cape on his back. He could have sent him as a full-grown adult. He could have sent him however he wanted to. But yet he chose to send him in this humble manner. A humble king wants humble servants. He came from poor parents. By the way, very quickly to mention that the, the old law would say that they were to bring a lamb, they were to bring from the flock and a turtle dove to the temple when that, that, those days of purification were filled. But there's a clause there. If you cannot afford that, you can bring two turtle doves. Joseph and Mary brought two turtle doves. Poor parents, a very humble beginning. No room at the end. Born in a manger. The word there, of course, is a feeding trough. The humble king wants humble servants. Paul would say in, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 12, as God's chosen ones put on humility. Our lives should be that of Jesus, following after him, a life of humility. James would say it in James chapter 4 and verse number 10, we sing it. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That should be our lifestyle, a lifestyle characteristic of the king. That was the way he came into this world. That was the way he lived, and that should be our life as well. A key characteristic of those who would follow after the humble king should be humility. That's who should follow him and worship him. And then third and finally, God's chosen, God's chosen one wants people to choose now, if you're looking at your blanks there, I think that we might be missing a blank there for the word people. I won't blame the secretary for that. It's not her fault. I'm supposed to be proofreading. I won't throw her under the bus and say she did it. But God's chosen wants people to choose. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. God sent forth His Son into this world. God gave His only begotten Son. He is the chosen one. And He wants people to choose. The wise men had a choice. Now they were told to go and they, they were following and they, they did go, but they had a choice of going back and telling Herod and maybe seeing Jesus be killed if that was the way that, that it was to go, but, but they chose to go another way. The shepherds had a choice. And by the way, as we said, the, shepherd, the shepherds had a choice 
They went, but they could have kept it to themselves. But it says that they went forth telling. They made it widely known to everyone they came in contact with about this Jesus, this Messiah. There's always been a choice. Many of us know Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15 in the Old Testament about choose you this day whom you will serve. We know and recall from Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 as he said, How long, how long will you go between two opinions? Choose to follow God. Jesus said to John in John chapter 6 verses 67 and 68, Do you want to go away? What's your choice? Those of you who are gathered here, John says, where are, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. It's interesting to think about the fact that, that we have a choice, just as they had a choice. The chosen one wants people to choose. And may we always choose and worship him. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. I'd point out one further thing to you as we conclude our thoughts this morning. Luke chapter 2, moving on from the birth of Christ, Luke chapter 2 in verse number 40, we see that the child grew and became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom. We see down in verse number 42 of Luke chapter 2 that he is now 12 years old. And in Luke 2.52, we see what we call the fourfold growth of Jesus, that he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature, and he grew in favor with God and in favor with man. Jesus continued to grow. Notice if you're there in Luke chapter 3 and verses 21 through about verse 23, we see Jesus again after Luke 2.52 there when he is baptized by John the baptizer. And in verse 23 it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. If you can do the math quickly, that's 18 years. 18 years are missing in this childhood, this, this growing of Christ that we don't know about other than that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. Brother Wayne Jackson points out in his commentary that, that maybe this is by inspiration. What's recorded for us about Jesus are, are mainly the things that have to do with redemption, that have to do with him saving mankind. I like how John says it at the very end of John's account of the gospel. John says in John 21 and verse number 25 that there were many other things that Jesus did. And John even says by inspiration, the New King James says, I suppose. I agree with John. Many other things Jesus did, and I suppose that if we were to record every one, record every one word by word that the world could not contain the books that would be written. It's kind of interesting to consider 18 years that are missing, according to our records. But as we think about the birth of Christ, and as we think about his life, and again, as we think more importantly about his death, burial, and resurrection, there's so much that is there for our encouragement. This morning, as we conclude this series and this lesson, I hope that you'll think about the birth of Christ. It's not necessarily sinful to think about it at the end of the year, in the month of December. It's definitely not sinful to think about it in July or any other month. May we remember what he did, the humble way that he came, that beginning, those who saw him and worshiped him, and may we make these applications to our lives. As we are about to sing this song of encouragement in just a moment, I think that poses for us a pretty interesting question. 
Where can I go? Where can I go but to the Lord? When we think about what Christ did, we think about the plan of salvation that he left for us. I hope that you'll consider that this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You stand in need of having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. That happens in baptism. Not because the water does it. Not because it's something magic that takes place. But because Christ shed his blood on that cross of Calvary so that we might have our sins washed away. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you've wandered away. You've forgotten about the important nature, the seriousness of being a follower of Christ. You've allowed sin in your life and separate you from him. We'll be singing as well to encourage you. There's nowhere else to go but to the Lord. That's where redemption is found in this Christ child, in his life, and yes, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe you need to come, become a Christian. Maybe you need to come back to him. Maybe you need the prayers of this congregation. We'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together. And